Good to see y'all tonight. Uh, I'll try to talk loud. If you can't hear me, just let me know, and I'll uh, uh, try to to speak as loudly as I can so y'all can hear me. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 11 tonight. Zechariah chapter 11. It's interesting. As I was studying, I, I saw John MacArthur said that no one would ever preach a sermon on Zechariah 11 unless he was a seminary student and got assigned the text as, a, <laughs> as, an, as an assignment. And uh, <laughs> that's what he said. He said uh, it's, one of the most, it's one of the most challenging passages in the Old Testament, and hardly anyone would ever preach on it because it's such a challenge to interpret properly. And so, uh, but I actually... Uh, you know, John, John MacArthur said that in his introduction of a sermon on Zechariah 11. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, another kind of person would preach on Zechariah 11, not just one who was assigned it, but a person who is committed to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the through through books of the Bible, like John MacArthur, like myself. So here we are in Zechariah chapter 11. Uh, according to Dr. MacArthur, one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to interpret properly uh, but you know I have I have my interpretation and I'm I'm uh, gonna gonna share it with you so Zechariah chapter 11 verse 4 is where we'll start tonight but before we do I know there are prayer needs prayer concern pray for my mom we did hire a sitter um, so uh, she she came and we with her boss, and we interviewed her, and said, "Yeah, we're, when can you start?" And she said, "Well, I came to work." <laughs> so she started yesterday, and uh, been there today. And uh, but mom has declined. We um, don't know. Think maybe she has had a TIA or a, a light stroke. She's uh, um, more confused and losing some. Uh, you know, so so we're we're not sure, but uh, we. So we have had a decline, but um, so continue to pray for our other. Are there others? Tiffany, yep. Any others? All right, let's pray together. Lord God, we uh, give you praise. Lord, and we, we thank you for the rain. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the bounty of creation, how you provide for our needs through what you've made. And, and Lord, uh, 
bringing forth from the earth that which we need to eat and seed to sow. And Lord, we're thankful for the illustration of your of the rain as illustrating the word that goes out from your mouth, accomplishing the purpose for which you send it and returning to you after it has accomplished that purpose. And Lord, as we open our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 11 tonight, Lord, we pray that your spirit would uh, uh, work in our hearts a, uh, uh, a truth, the truth of this passage. And Lord, help us to understand and properly interpret and properly apply it to our lives. And Lord, we're thankful for the ministry of the Spirit that helps us deal with difficult passages, difficult texts, and, and we pray that you would grant us wisdom. Lord, we do pray for Tiffany, pray for uh, the effectiveness of the treatments, Lord. We pray for her healing and recovery, and just thank you for the good reports so far. And We just pray for continued uh, goodness and uh, good reports and full recovery, full restoration. Thank you for all those that are involved in her care and the technology that you provided to minister to uh, uh, to, to take care of such disease or, or mitigate them, we're thankful. And Lord, we're, uh, we do pray for Ginger and her, her, her family and pray that you would uh, bring, bring healing and recovery and we pray that you would strengthen her as she provides care and uh, help her to be patient and persevering and uh, enduring and wise and gracious as she cares. And we pray for uh, uh, that family. We pray for Rachel and Thank you for Lizzie and coming alongside to help Rachel. And uh, we do pray for Mom and pray that uh, she would recover and be restored. And, and Lord, continue to uh, just help her to, to improve, help her to feel good, to be, uh, be comfortable, and to be at peace. We ask for your, your, your care for her. And Lord, we're thankful for our church, thankful for the opportunity we have to uh, meet tonight. We pray that you would grant us grace. We pray for the Southern Baptist Convention, for folks who will be traveling uh, Sunday and Monday to Nashville for safety, and then, Lord, a good, peaceable meeting that uh, uh, stands firm on your truth and your word, uh, the sufficiency of the Bible, and, Lord, just help our denomination to uh, uh, stay true to you and to be effective instrument in your hands. We ask for your your grace for our, our convention and wisdom as we elect a new president and wisdom for that president as he carries out his responsibilities and leads us. Help him to lead us in truth and righteousness. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Zechariah chapter 11. And, uh, you know, Dr. MacArthur said nobody would preach a sermon on so I'm just going to do a Bible study. <laughs> so, uh, so this is a Bible study. Uh, and maybe the reason that this chapter is so difficult is because of the the tone, the uh, uh, the tone of the passage, <clears throat> or, you know, well, the, uh, the tone is different than much of Zechariah. Uh, wh- what's the tone of Zechariah been as we've gone through? What what kind of messages is he delivering primarily to the people? Encouragement, comfort, yeah. Even in uh, uh, in chapter one, verse thirteen. He said, the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. And so to this point, the message has been encouragement and comfort. They've come back from exile, and they're, uh, they're trying to uh, rebuild the temple, and Zechariah's encouraging them to persevere and endure. He's promised the restoration of, of Judah, Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the city, the reunification of Israel and Judah. And, uh, and so it's been a very encouraging message. 
But then in chapter 11, it seems to take a totally different, uh, a totally different tone. Um, in fact, in Zechariah 11:4, the Lord calls His flock the flock for slaughter. And so the tone suddenly changes from encouragement and promises of restoration, and now He's calling the same people the flock for slaughter. And then in chapter 12, He goes back to comforting and encouraging messages. And so, so chapter 11 really stands out as having a, a different tone. And God says He will no longer pity the flock that is devoted to slaughter. So let's read it and then we'll break it out verse by verse and see if we can uh, determine the message for us uh, today. Uh, Zechariah chapter 11 verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff beauty and cut it in two that I might break the covenant with which I had made with all peoples. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Then I cut into my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear the hoofs in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. And so... Uh, uh, Zechariah, the tone changes from the message of encouragement and comfort to those who had returned from exile. And now he says that those people uh, will be, he will have pity on them no more. They are flocked, devoted to slaughter, and the unity between Judah and Jerusalem or Israel will be broken. In contrast to the messages we've got seen before that promise, seem to promise rec, rec, uh, restoration. Um, and, and because of this change of tone, a lot of interpreters think that Zechariah is looking into the past. 
And then he goes back and he's talking about the reasons that Israel and Judah were divided, the divided kingdom, and the reasons that they went into exile. And so he, uh, many interpreters, a lot of interpreters say he's reflecting back on the exile, even though he's speaking to people who have come back from the exile. Uh, but I, I believe that, uh, that Zechariah is actually looking into the future, that he is going to act out events that are going to take place about 500 years in the future, and as we go through, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of tell you why I, I take that, why I take that view. Now, in, in chapter four, uh, in chapter eleven, verse four, the Lord says, "Feed the flock for slaughter." So, what he's doing? Remember, Zechariah had several different ways that he's received the message from the Lord. In, in the first part of the book, there were this series of visions. I think eight visions that he had. The Lord allowed him to see. Uh, into the spiritual realm that's normally not seen by humans, and the Lord provided an in- angel that spoke to him to interpret those those visions. And then uh, in the next couple of chapters, the Lord just spoke to him directly. The word of the Lord came to him. And now Zechariah is called to act out the message. And so he he actually is told to uh, to uh, participate to to participate in a one a one man play, a drama, uh, and so this message comes from his actions. He is acting out the message, and the Lord tells him to pasture the flock, to tend the flock, to shepherd the sheep, and to take this role as a shepherd. And so he is told to act out his message from the Lord to play the role of the shepherd. He's called to be an actor. And I believe to take up the role of the promised Messiah, the promised King that is coming uh, uh, from the line of David that that, uh, Zechariah has promised, the other prophets have promised this Davidic King to come and and fulfill the covenant, the promises God had made to David to reign over the house of Judah forever and ever and ever. And so I believe that uh, Zechariah is acting out the role, a drama predicting the ministry of the coming King, the Christ, the Messiah, uh, the Lord the Lord Jesus. And so he's performing the role of Jesus in a one-man play, I believe. And, uh, and so he's told to feed the flock. To, uh, the word here is pastor, shepherd the people. And as we talked about last week, we talked about uh, the role of the shepherd last week. And uh, uh, the, the shepherd has the responsibility to feed the sheep, to care for the sheep, to lead the sheep, to protect the flock. And so Zechariah is told to take the role of a shepherd. And he's, he's, he's going to shepherd a flock that is designated for slaughter. And so Zechariah is told to shepherd this flock that is on its way to the butcher shop. <laughs> is, uh, is the mission that he is given. And the, uh, uh, the, ver- the fifth verse, the next verse, seems to me to describe the situation in Judah uh, that closely parallels the time of the Lord Jesus. Uh, This flock, their owners slaughter them. The owners slaughter them and, uh, uh, and have no guilt, have no shame about the fact that they slaughter, but then it speaks of those who sell them. And so... There were those shepherds who had sold the flock to new owners, and the owners purchased them for the purpose of slaughtering them. 
So, uh, so those who uh, owned the sheep first sold them to others, and the others slaughtered them. And those who sold the sheep, look what they say. They say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And so these shepherds sold the sheep into the hands of others who would destroy them. And instead of being ashamed of that, they thought that the Lord had blessed them with great riches because they had sold this flock, his flock, his people, to be butchered. They only saw the flock as a way to make money. So they sold them to other, other, anim, other owners who uh, wanted to slaughter them. And the owners seemed to be uh, foreign oppressors. You know, throughout the history of uh, the divided kingdom, both the kings of Judah and Israel entered into costly political alliances with foreign and pagan nations that resulted in the oppression of God's people. As we study through Kings and Chronicles, we see that from time to time the, the kings of both kingdoms would make an alliance with Egypt or, or Syria and and, and others, and, and the result was always oppression. But in the time of the Lord Jesus, uh, who was ruling over the land of Judah? Who had authority over, over the land during the time of Jesus? The Romans, that's exactly correct. And so during the time of Jesus, the Romans were uh, oppressing God's people. Uh, Judah was under the ownership of the, of Rome, and uh, uh, and there are also those who sold them. The buyers are from the outside, Rome, foreign oppressors, but the sellers are on the inside. It was their own leaders that sold them out to the Romans. The leaders sell them for money and show no compassion on them, as we see in verses 5 and verses 6. The leaders around them are proud of their treachery and they brag about how they've become rich and even attribute their wealth to God's blessing. And that's what had happened in Judah during the time of Jesus. The leaders sold out to Rome, allowing Rome to oppress the people and collect exorbitant taxes in exchange for allowing the leaders to have positions of power and prestige. Uh, the, the leaders of Judah had sold the people off to make themselves rich. They had cut a deal with Rome. You can oppress the people. You can gather your taxes as long as you allow us a little bit of power. And, and as we read through the New Testament, we see that the Sanhedrin had a lot of authority, a lot of power uh, to, to govern the day-to-day -day operations of the, of the city, bringing Jesus to trial. But remember, one power that, they were, that was withheld from them was the power to... Uh, execute to, to, to give the death penalty. So they needed to go to Pilate uh, before they were able to murder Jesus. But then over in Acts chapter 7, what does San Sanhedrin do? They murder Stephen. And, uh, and so they had, they had a lot of power, a lot of prestige. They were wealthy. They were operating a, a, a market in the courtyards of the temple. And they were wealthy and powerful and influential. And so the leaders of the people had sold the people to Rome in exchange for positions of power and influence and opportunities to gather wealth. And so the, the, uh, the, 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 their own leaders had sold them to foreign oppressors. 
And then verse 6, the Lord says, I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land. His, his patient is, patience is going to run out. He will no longer have mercy. He will no longer uh, have pity on them. He will now uh, give them exactly what they deserve. He will give them His wrath and His anger. And uh, the instrument of his judgment, I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of the king. So the judgment comes from two different sources. The first is uh, uh, their neighbors, the one another's, uh, the, the other people. They will fight among themselves. They will uh, each be seeking to get their own way or their own to use their neighbor for their own benefit and so uh, there will be conflict with their neighbors they will uh, uh, be disorder as they aren't living peaceably together uh, and so each neighbor is going to try to oppress his neighbor and use his neighbor for his own benefit and and then that will cause disorder and cause chaos and as a result the king will have to come in and bring order and then the second arm of the second hand of God's judgment is the hand of the king. And the king shall attack the land and not deliver them from their hand. And so uh, uh, we, we see here, you know, God, God has instituted government to keep order. God ordained the state. Romans chapter 13 says that every authority, every power comes from God. Every authority, all authority has come from God. And God ordained and instituted the state to keep order, to make it possible for sinful people to live uh, among themselves without destroying each other. Uh, and, and so the, the more that people are able to govern themselves, the less authority, less power that government needs. And so if people are able to live together peaceably with their neighbors because they self-discipline, they self-control, they live according to the law of God that's been written on their heart or given, uh, given to God as long as society is orderly, well then government doesn't have much to do. But when order in society breaks down and neighbors begin to go against neighbors, then the strong hand of the state has to come and bring order, bring peace, right? And so, uh, so, so God's plan, you know, uh, God established the the, the state to, to, to keep order. Uh, but before he ever established the government, he wrote the law, his law on the hearts of every human person. He created people in his own image. And, and Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that, that everybody really uh, has the law written on their heart. You look at all human societies and basically there's a common definition of what's right and what's wrong. God has written His law on His heart, and, and each individual has a responsibility to discipline themselves and to live according to the dictates of their conscience, to live according to the law written on their heart. Uh, but when that breaks down and they begin to uh, 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 use their neighbor, oppress their neighbor, then uh, government has to come in and bring peace and bring order. But not only did God write his law on the heart of every single person that he created in his image. He also established, before he established the, the state, he established the family. And the family, an institution to bring order to society. Why has the state always regulated marriage? Because it was in the interest of the state for uh, children to be raised 
in a home where there was a father and a mother and where there was order and where there was proper submission and lining up under authority and where the law of God was not only written on their heart but taught (laughs) to the children. And the children were taught right from wrong and children were disciplined and taught self-control and self-discipline. And so God intends to have an orderly society through writing His law on the hearts of every person, through establishing the institution of the family, which is the basic building block of an orderly society, one man, one woman for life in a relationship that procreates. And then that relationship that procreates is also the perfect relationship to raise and nurture children that are going to contribute to an orderly society. But when family begins to break down, and neighbors begin to go against neighbors, the state has to come in and bring order and bring and keep sinful people from destroying each other. And so uh, uh, that was all God's design. And uh, why do people who want uh, an authoritative state advocate the breakdown of the family? Well, because if the family's broken down, the state has to come in and provide order. And if people can't discipline themselves and families can't discipline one another and their children, then more authority comes to the state, and the state comes in with a heavy hand in order to bring order. And so, uh, so what will happen is order is going to break down. First thing that's going to happen is the neighbors are going to turn each, against each other, and then the king is going to have to come in, and he's going to come in with a very strong hand, and he is going to attack the land, and God says, I will not deliver them from his hand. And so, uh, according to my interpretation, who's the king? The king is Caesar. The king is Caesar. And God is going to deliver His people into the hand of Caesar, and Caesar will attack the land, and God will not deliver them out of His hand. Well, how is it that Caesar became their king? How did Caesar become the king of God's people? Well, we talked about the religious leaders and the political leaders selling the people into the hands of Rome, making a deal with Rome. You can come in, you can oppress the people, you can bring your troops, you can bring your idols, you can collect exorbitant taxes from the people as long as you give us our place and our position and our power and our influence and our prestige and our opportunity to also get rich off of this deal. And so the religious leaders had had sold the people into the hand of Caesar. And then the religious leaders had a chance to choose King Jesus over them. God sent His Christ. God sent the Messiah. God sent Jesus, the King of the Jews, one from line of David that God had ordained that He would put all of His enemies under His feet. God sent King Jesus into Jerusalem, into Judah, and they had an opportunity to choose Jesus as their King. But instead of choosing Jesus as their King, they told the Roman governor, they told Pilate, we will not have this man rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. On the last day of Jesus' earthly life, Pilate put Jesus before the Jews, before the religious and political leaders of the Jews, and trying to mock both him and them, 
Pilate dressed him in a robe, put on his head a crown of thorns, and gave him a reed as a scepter, and stood him before the Jews and said, Behold your king. And the Jews said, We will not have this man rule over us. Away with him. Away with him. And crucify him. And Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. They made their choice. The shepherds sold the people into Caesar's hands. And 40 years later, in AD 70, Caesar came and massacred them and destroyed the city and put the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, to an end. And so the shepherds of the people chose to kill Jesus because the they thought that it would keep them in good standing with the Romans. Yeah, after Jesus had risen Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, uh, the, the, the chief priest and the Pharisees, they had a meeting. They came together and they asked, what shall we do? This man works many signs. If we let him alone, we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so they came together and said, if this man keeps going through the line, through the land, doing signs like this, raising people from the dead, pretty soon everybody's going to go and believe in him, and the Romans are going to come and take away our place. The deal's going to be off. They're going to come and, and, uh, and, and, and take our position and our power away. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation perish. And so the, the leaders, the shepherds of Judah, the shepherds of Israel, rejected King Jesus and sold themselves and the people into the hand of King Caesar, who 40 years later came and massacred them, slaughtered them, destroyed them, and scattered uh, the people of Israel all over the world. Forty years later, the shepherds of Israel liked it the way it was. They wanted the Romans there because they had it pretty good. They were selling the people to the Romans in order to get rich. And so they killed their Messiah. They killed the Christ. They killed their king in order, uh, thinking that it would put them in good standing with Rome. And in the end, 40 years later, God used Rome to slaughter them all and to scatter all that survived. And so uh, uh, Israel's own leaders sold them into the hand of the king who ultimately slaughtered them all. And Zechariah is acting all of this out. And so verse 7 returns to the drama, returns to his play. Zechariah fed the flock. He fed the flock for slaughter. And uh, who among the flock paid the most attention to the message of Zechariah? Who responded to his feeding? The poor. The poor and the afflicted. I fed the flock for slaughter. In particular, the poor of the flock. When Jesus came, who was it that responded to 
the message of Jesus mostly? Was it the shepherds, the rich, the the, the no? It was the poor, the outcast, the unsynagogue, the the tax collectors, the the prostitutes, the lame. And Jesus, it was the poor and afflicted that hurt him, just as Zechariah. The ones who believed were not the rich, not the powerful, not the prestigious, not the strong, not the mighty, not the highly educated. The ones who hurt him were the tax collectors, the outcasts, the the, the prostitutes, the low lives. And here again, Zechariah is playing the role of the coming Messiah. And it's the poor who hear and respond to his message, just as will be true 500 years later when the King, when Messiah, when the Christ comes. And, uh, and in this action, he takes two staffs. So he feeds the flock, the poor are attentive. He takes two staffs, and what are, what are the two staffs named? Beauty and bonds. So he takes these two staffs, and the staff uh, was a common tool of the shepherd. He's shepherding the people. He's performing the role of a shepherd. Uh, the staff is a common tool of the shepherd. One end looks like a hook, and the hook is used for gathering the wayward sheep. You know, as a sheep begins to, to graze and not pay attention and get over to a, da- a dangerous place, the shepherd will use that staff and drag that sheep back to himself. And so it's used for gathering the sheep, disciplining the sheep, getting them back on, on, on course, getting them back to the shepherd, keeping them from wandering astray. And the other end of the, sh- the staff is like a club. <laughs> and so uh, the club can be used to discipline the sheep, but most commonly the other end, the club, was used to beat back any wild animals or any thieves that might come and attack the sheep. The, 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 the sheep. And so the staff was a, an important tool. And Zechariah has two staffs, and he gives the staffs two names, beauty and bonds. Beauty, grace, tender care, loving kindness, undeserved favor, mercy. And so, uh, you know, that, that one end of the staff used for, for, for bringing, gathering, showing grace, care, loving kindness. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 23, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And, uh, and, and so one of these is beauty, grace. The second is bonds, unity, togetherness, community, the bonds that, that hold God's people together. And so he has these two staffs as he's acting out this, this, uh, uh, this drama as he is portraying the role of the coming king, the coming Messiah. And verse 8 says, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. Now, uh, uh, Dr. MacArthur says there's like 40 different interpretations of who these three shepherds are. <laughs> Four, zero, 40 different interpretations of, of these three shepherds. And, uh, of course, I, I have my view. Uh, but it's impossible to say with certainty. But I think given the t- context here, he's speaking into the future. He's speaking into the time of Jesus. And so he's not speaking here, I don't believe, about specific individuals but groups of individuals. And during the time of Jesus, there were basically three groups that were shepherding the people. And we see them in the Gospels. We see the the chief priest, the elders, and they're also called the Sadducees, and the scribes, and most of the scribes are 
Pharisees. And so I believe that this is what he's talking about, the three shepherds, these three group of people who are leading the people during the time of the coming king that they reject. And, and instead, these shepherds sell the people into the hands of the, the Romans, the Caesar, who will ultimately come and destroy them. And so uh, uh, the, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, we meet them in the Gospels, and Jesus will come. But these three shepherds will reject the king and they will sell the people into the hands of Caesar. And 40 years later, God will use Caesar to obliterate the shepherds of Israel and to annihilate uh, not only the leaders, but the flock and scatter the descendants of Israel all over the world. God's patience is going to run out. He says, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them. And their soul also abhorred me. And so God's patient ru patience runs out on the worthless shepherds, and his patience runs out, and his loving kindness turns into wrath, it turns into judgment. He finally, uh, he's long suffering, but finally, his patience runs out. They are unrepentant, and so he turns to them in judgment. And his souls love them, and and uh, says, he also abhorred me. And so his loving kindness turns into loathing at the hardness of their hearts and their abuse of the sheep that they were called to lead. And uh, 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 his patience runs out. He sends the Christ. And then they hate, they abhor the Christ. They abhor the Savior that God sent. And, uh, and so they hate Christ. And because they hate Christ... God's patience runs out, and He brings desolation on them. And, and, verse, and verse 9, it's definitely a horrifying picture. I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, what is perishing perish, and let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And that, that's what happens during a siege. It happened in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege and no food could get into the city and so people starved to death and they died. And then the people who survived, what did they do to keep living? They ate the corpses of those who had died of hunger. And what happened in AD 70, it's not in the scripture, uh, but uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us the same thing happened uh, in AD 70 when the Romans came and laid siege to Jerusalem. There was famine, there was starvation, and the people in the city uh, ended, up, ended up eating the corpses. And then you've heard of Masada, the massacre at the final battle when, uh, uh, when Caesar came and totally destroyed Israel and scattered the remnant, the, those who remained all over the world. So that's exactly, verse 9 describes in, 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 in detail exactly what happened. During the time of Nebuchadnezzar, 90 years before, and it will happen again when Caesar lays siege in AD 70. Yes, ma'am. Scattered then as they sent the message 
So I, I'm just, I guess my, my mind is asking. Yeah. Well, what we actually Christians killed when this the, yeah, but you know, mostly because in Acts chapter eight, we read read uh, Sunday that the church was scattered all but the apostles, and so yeah, so so the church, so so basically, what happens in Acts chapter eight at the death of Stephen? Basically, Jerusalem at that point is given over. You know, God God has uh, the, the first seven chapters of of uh, Acts, the church is ministering in Jerusalem. The church is growing. We read about thousands coming to faith in Jesus. And then when Stephen is killed, that's like the event that closes the door on Jerusalem. Because at that point, the church is driven out of Jerusalem. They're scattered. Just the apostles stay in Jerusalem for a little while. Um, But never again... In the book of Acts, after chapter 8, we'll never see any growth in the church at Jerusalem. And so that's almost like, okay, Jerusalem, you had your chance. You hardened your heart against the Savior. You killed Stephen, and therefore I'm I'm closing the door on Jerusalem. And now the the effort is Judea and Samaria. And that's with the people that have carried the message. The Christians that fled from Jerusalem. So because of the persecution, the Christians flee from Jerusalem. Now they're going to get persecuted too at Rome is also killing Christians. They're ultimately going to kill Paul and Peter um, and exile John. You know, so they're getting persecuted too, but the massacre that happens in Jerusalem, mostly Jewish. Yeah, you know, the, the, those that had not converted. But, but there will also be a massive persecution of Christians in Rome all the way up until A.D. 325 when Constantine, the emperor, becomes a Christian. And then Christian Christianity becomes legal in AD 325, and and then and that's why you, you hear of the Roman Catholic Church, kind of the so the Roman Empire becomes Christian in 325, but between AD AD 33 the death of Jesus to 325 the church is also persecuted by Rome, but not annihilated obviously, but uh, but it has to be underground. So, uh, so yeah, a good, excellent question. And so, uh, so uh, that's the, the 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 king comes and lays siege, and uh, they're destroyed. Verse ten. I took my staff, beauty. Remember that that's grace, tenderness, uh, the covenant. Uh, I cut it in two that I might break the covenant which I made with all the people. And so, in verse ten, the covenant is broken. God had agreed to be Israel's protector. And he had been. You know, we've read through the Old Testament. We see how God, God protects his people. Yeah, from time to time, he disciplines them. He raises up armies that are going to bring his judgment and his wrath upon them. But ultimately, God is their protector. He, he, he continues to protect them. He sent them into exile, brought them back, and uh, is protecting them. But uh, once they reject their Messiah, that covenant is broken after the rejection of Jesus that covenant is set aside, and Jesus brings a new and better covenant. And the people of God in the world are no longer Israel, but the people of God are now the church from a new and better covenant. And so uh, I will break that covenant that I made with all the peoples. And so it was broken on that day, 
Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. So again, we see that the, the poor, the afflicted, are the ones who are believing, who are hearing and believing and, uh, and, and heeding the warning that, uh, that he is bringing. Uh, so there will be a believing remnant from the poor of the flock. And then, and then verse, verse 12, the drama continues. Now, Zechariah had performed the role as a shepherd. He had shepherded the people. And so in verse 12, he says, okay, I've worked for you. I've shepherded you. Now, consider whether or not you want to pay me for the work that I have done. I've shepherded the people, and, and, and are you willing to pay me for the work I've done? Are you willing to pay me for my ministry? And so he asks him, he says, uh, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages. But if not, it's okay. Uh, refrain. Don't, you know, if you, if you don't feel like you sh- I should be paid for the work that I've done, don't pay me. Zachariah's not in it for the money. And so uh, I've, I've shepherded you. If you would like to uh, compensate me for shepherding you, that's fine. I'll take it. If you don't want to, that's also fine. I'll do without. And, uh, and so they, what did they decide to pay Zechariah for his ministry? 30 pieces of silver. All right, so they weigh out 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver just happens to be what the law requires to be paid for a slave that is gored by an ox. So if you've got an ox and you don't put him away and he goes and he gores your neighbor's slave, you have to pay your neighbor 30 pieces of silver. And so 30 pieces of silver is the going rate for an ordinary slave. If a slave gets killed by an ox, the owner of the ox has to pay the owner of the slave 30 pieces of silver. And so the people tell Zechariah and later the Messiah, all you're worth to us, is just a common, ordinary slave. All that preaching you did, uh, you're just the, you just the worth the value of a slave. Nothing more. 30 pieces of silver, the going rate for a slave. And so they weigh out that. That's all your work to us. You're just an ordinary slave. And uh, what does God tell Zechariah to do with the 30 pieces of silver that he, that he is given from the people. Throw it to the potter. Yeah. And so, uh, 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 and, and notice the sarcasm. <laughs> 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave, but notice Zachariah's sarcasm. Throw it to the potter, potter that princely price they set on me. And so Zechariah is being sarcastic. They're not giving him the wages of a prince. They're giving him the wages of a slave or the value of a slave. And so he, uh, he's a little bit sarcastic here. That princely price. Go, the Lord says, go and give it to the potter. And so Zechariah goes in disgust and takes that 30 pieces of silver and throws it down in the house of the Lord to be given to the potter. He says, uh, he says, I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord 
for the potter. And so, uh, uh, who else has 30 pieces of silver and throws it down in the house of the Lord? Judas. Yes, Judas sold the king, the Messiah, 30 pieces of silver, the going price of a slave, and that money just reminded him of his guilt and his shame, and he took it and he threw it into the house of the Lord. And what did the shepherds of Israel do with those 30 pieces of silver? They bought the potter's field. 500 years before all this happened, notice the amazing accuracy, the, 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 the parallel between what Zechariah is acting out and what happens during the times of Jesus. 500 years later, Judas has 30 pieces of silver that he had sold the king. He got gotten for betraying the king. He throws it down in the house of the Lord. They won't put it in the treasury, but they go and they buy the potter's field. And then verse 14 I cut in my two I cut in two my other staff bonds that I may break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel when Caesar came and laid siege the people were scattered there was no unity there wasn't no community those that survived there was a, a, a horrible massacre probably over a million Jews killed by the Romans in AD 70 and those that survived scattered all over the earth there was no unity there was no community there was no bonds before the people they all dispersed the nation was completely broken up. And then verse 15, The Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. And we don't have any idea what implements of a foolish shepherd, what, you know, what the tools, we know the staff of the, of the shepherd that he used. He had two staffs, but the implements of a foolish shepherd, he doesn't give us any insight to, to what they are. But, but he does tell us that they take the implements of the, the foolish shepherd. And then in verse 16, he says, I will indeed raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear the hoofs in pieces. And so the people had worthless shepherds, who sold them into the hands of owners who would slaughter them. And so they had these worthless shepherds. They, let, they followed them. They were led astray by them. They were sold into the hand of the king by them. Uh, they had worthless shepherds who led them astray. But they allowed themselves to be led astray. They followed the worthless shepherds. They were led to reject the king the Messiah, the Christ. Those worthless shepherds went and stirred up the mob to stand before Pilate and say, we will not have this man rule over us. Away with him, away with him. Crucify him, crucify him. Oh, would you want me to crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. And so they had worthless shepherds, but the people aren't not responsible because of the worthless shepherds. They followed those shepherds. They were led astray by those shepherds. And now God's going to bring His judgment onto them. And what is their judgment for having followed worthless shepherds? More worthless shepherds. <laughs> More worthless shepherds. So He gives them over. What do you, you want a worthless shepherd? Okay, I'll give you a worthless shepherd. Uh, he gives them over. 
that's what you want, that's what you will get. And he, he calls them the implements of a foolish shepherd. Now, in, when we think of a fool, we think of somebody who's silly or somebody who is just, uh, you know, not serious, not wise, a, a, a foolish person. But in, when the Bible uses the word fool, it's not just talking about somebody who's silly or not so smart or simple. When the Bible uses the word fool, it is talking about a person who is in rebellion against God. The fool is set in his heart. There is no God. And so the most... Yes, yeah, they're the worthless shepherds. But now he's going to raise up more worthless shepherds. And, uh, uh, and so a fool is someone who rejects God, who is in rebellion against God, who rejects the Lord and becomes evil and self-serving. And so that's the shepherds that God's going to raise up. That's right, foolish, worthless shepherds. Uh, and, and, and he tells us, what you know, shepherds, we're going to raise up for you shepherds who do not care for those who are cut off. They do not seek the young. They do not heal those that are broken or feed those that, are still, that still stand. But instead, he will devour them. He will eat the flesh and, and tear their hooves. So like the, the worthless shepherds will come upon the sheep like a lion and devour them and eat them and, and rip away their flesh. Um, he devours the sheep and feasts on them like a wild animal. And so the Lord says to the people, you want a worthless shepherd? You want to follow worthless shepherds? Fine, I'll give you worthless shepherds. I'll let you have what you want. He gives them over. And God raises up oppressive leadership and judgment of His people for rejecting Him as their shepherd. The worthless shepherd is God's judgment on His people. You want bad leaders? You want to follow bad leaders? Okay, I'll give you bad leaders. <laughs> you reject me as shepherd over you? Okay, I'll... Raise up a worthless shepherd. Remember when uh, in, in Samuel, when they asked for a king, God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And guess what the king's going to do? <laughs> he's going to take your daughters and he's going to put them in his harem. He's going to take your sons and put them in his army. He's going to take all your, 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 your crops and feed himself and his house. You want a king? Okay, I'll give you a king. <laughs> you don't want me to be king over you? Okay, you'll, you'll have to deal with a sinful human king. And so that's, that's what exactly what happens here. But also notice, not only is God going to judge the people by raising up worthless shepherds, He's also going to judge the worthless, worthless shepherds. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be against his arm, and against his right eye his arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. And so the, uh, the worthless shepherd is God's judgment upon the people, and uh, God will also judge the worthless shepherds. So... Uh, my interpretation is that Zechariah here is acting out what's going to happen 500 years in the future. He is acting out the role of the good shepherd, uh, the one that will come as king, be rejected by his people, but ultimately save a remnant, all those who come to him in repentance and faith. The Lord is our shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and takes it up again and calls his sheep to himself. But when we reject the Lord, he gives us over to the consequences of our choices. He is a good shepherd, but he will bring judgment on those who persistently and consistently reject his care. His patience will run out. And he is a good shepherd, but those who persist in their rebellion ultimately his patience will run out and he will 
they will experience His wrath, His judgment. And Jesus came to bring beauty and bonds, grace and unity. But He was rejected and He was killed. He was rejected, betrayed, and killed. And God broke the covenant with Israel and brought a new covenant. And now the church, or the people of God in Israel, has been scattered. But Zechariah 11 is not the end of the story. <laughs> There's a couple more chapters of Zechariah. <laughs> and so the rejection, the betrayal of the Good Shepherd is not the end. And today, Jesus shepherds His people by His Word. Jesus feeds the flock with the bread of life, the Word of God. And Jesus shepherds His flock through the ministry of under-shepherds. The word pastor comes from the Latin word shepherd. And local church pastors serve under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And, and, and actually, if we look at what the worthless, foolish shepherds do, and we take the opposite, we can come up with a good job description for the under-shepherds, for those who are, what's the opposite of worthless? Uh, valuable shepherds, unfoolish shepherds, wise shepherds. And so if foolish, worthless shepherds do these things, what will a wise shepherd do if we take the opposite of verse 16? He will care for those who are cut off. He will go and, and, and those who have... Uh, water to stray, he'll go and care for them and try to bring them back into the into the fold. He will care for those. He will seek the young, take care of those young sheep and train them and teach them and discipline them so they grow into mature and reproducing sheep. The the good shepherd, the wise shepherd, the valuable shepherd will heal those that are broken, bring healing to the broken and those who still stand, those that are healthy and mature, they still get fed by the valuable shepherd. And so uh, uh, as we look at what a foolish shepherd does, we could take the opposite, and that's the, the task and the standard that we need to hold our pastors accountable for. That The opposite of verse 16 is my job description. <laughs> yes, ma'am, that's right. It's the foolish pastors, the foolish, foolishness of uh, those shepherds mm -hmm. wanting to sell the people to the mob to enrich themselves instead of man-made rules and regulations. Amen. So what should a shepherd do? Care for those that are cut off, seek the young, heal the broken, and feed those that stand. So Zechariah acts out a one-man drama, a one-man play, uh, pointing to the king that will come and be rejected, but will gather to himself a remnant and bring a new and better covenant and bring unity and community uh, to all who believe from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. So that's my understanding of Zechariah 11. Questions?
<laughs> well, thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Enjoyed studying it. But, it's, uh, it's Yeah, and, and so it's a warning. And then the warning is not heeded. But there is hope. There is hope, and we'll talk about that next time in, in chapter 12, because ultimately there will be repentance, and they will look upon the one that they have pierced. And, uh, and so there's, there's hope for Israel in chapter 12. We'll see that. And next week, um, Brother Gary will be here uh, leading Wednesday night Bible study. And, uh, and then the next Sunday, um, our grandson, Isaiah, is going to be dedicated in Tupelo. And so I've asked uh, Daniel Jolly from he attends First Baptist Aberdeen to come and preach on the 20th on Father's Day. Wow. And now that we've got a sitter, Rachel and I can both go to Isaiah's baby dedication, maybe. <laughs> so we hope so if, if everything continues to work all right. But uh, so those are that's what's coming up. And so any other thoughts before we pray and dismiss? All right, let's pray together. Lord God, we give you praise, Lord. And uh, we thank you that you are long-suffering and so patient with us. And thank you for your grace and sending Jesus, the good shepherd, to lay down his life and to take it up again and to call his sheep and to gather those who know him and hear his voice and follow him and give life. So, Lord, we give you praise. We thank you for this plan and how you, you worked it from before the foundation of the earth through history and even pointed directly and specifically to the life and ministry of Jesus. And yet, even with these warnings, he was rejected and despised. But we recognize that was your plan. To save sinful people, to redeem your people to yourself, and we give you praise. And Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us, long-suffering. Lord, just help us to submit and to be wise and not be in rebellion, but seek to follow you and do that which you call us to do. Lord, and we do pray that you would raise up wise shepherds all across the Southern Baptist Commission, all across our land. Lord, that you would raise up shepherds that would heal broken people that would feed the flock, that would go seek after the young and the cut off. Lord, we pray for godly leaders and godly shepherds that we can follow with confidence. Pray that you raise up leaders that lead with integrity, that faithfully preach your word, and that uh, lead us in obedience to the good shepherd, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.